this is Tap In Time, a Chapman Stick podcast. Whether you've played the instrument for years or are just curious, if it's stick talk you're looking for, this is the place. So come along and stay a while. Happy New Year, everyone out there, and welcome to Tap In Time. This is episode number 23, and I am Victor. I'm Claire. And I'm Gene. So today we are joined by Steve Adelson. Now I'm not really sure how much of an introduction Steve needs. He's one of the most well-known masters of the instrument. When you watch him play, his hands and his fingers just glide across the instrument with an ease and confidence that, well, quite frankly, I can only dream of having. And I think I might be speaking for a lot of other people as well. He's both played the instrument and taught on it for decades, and he's published multiple books and videos that many of us have benefited from. Beyond the stick community, he's also well-known in the music community at large, perhaps most notably in the jazz community, where he's played with what seems like an endless list of big names in jazz. And he's also served as a producer and the founder of the Long Beach Jazz Festival, which he started in 2003 and has grown into a major musical event in the New York area. So this is really cool. Steve, welcome to Tap In Time. Thank you, Victor. It's a pleasure to be here. So why don't we just dive in? Um, so I took lessons with Steve for a couple of years when I, uh, when I was new to the instrument. And, you know, I still, even though I talked with you on a regular basis, I still don't really know your musical background. You know, how did music enter your life? And after that, at what point did the stick enter? Can you give us kind of your musical biography? Or I guess for you, it'd be the autobiography since you'll be doing the talking. But uh. <laughs> Sure. There was a, a big year, 1969. That was the year of Woodstock. And uh, I actually went to Woodstock. And I oh, had really? just graduated high school. Yeah, I was at Woodstock. Wow. It wasn't as cool. I mean, it was cool to say it after the fact, but uh, it, was, it wasn't the, the, the most pleasurable experience. Uh, you know, well, for other reasons, but we won't talk about that. <clears throat> so I had just graduated high school on the way to college, and I didn't even play guitar. And a friend of mine showed me a couple of chords on the guitar, and I was hooked. So I played guitar. My friends were playing music of the day, you know, Beatles songs and Grateful Dead, Led Zeppelin. And I went that way. But after about six months to a year, I thought there has to be more. So I started taking some lessons. Uh, I found a great teacher named Charles Didier who introduced me to jazz. I didn't know anything about it. I knew some of the names, that's about it. <clears throat> and then as I started learning it, I got more interested in it. At first it was, okay, I'll learn this vocabulary and I'll bring it to the Allman Brothers, in the Allman Brothers music, and I'll be the baddest guitar player on the planet because I'm playing uh, jazz versions of Allman Brothers songs and bringing in sophisticated chords. <laughs> Little did I know that I was going to fall in love with, you know, Wes Montgomery and Django Reinhardt and all that kind of music. So within about a year or two, my listening had changed quite a bit. It went from going to the Fillmore East, which I still did. Fillmore East is where, you know, all, all, the, all the big name, name bands played. Uh, Allman Brothers Live at the Fillmore, I was actually there. Uh, Jethro Tull, uh, Frank Zappa. And all of a sudden, there was these other guitar players, Wes Montgomery, a couple years later, Pat Martino, Pat Metheny. And uh, I just took an interest in that because I just found it to be, there were more avenues to pursue. 
you know, blues is great and rock is great. Uh, I just need a little bit more um, as far as harmonic structure and, and just, you know, it opened up a lot of doors. So that's that was the path it took jazz-wise. I still play the other stuff. And matter of fact, now I finally reached that dream where I am playing jazz versions of Led Zeppelin songs on this uh-huh. thing. So that's very cool. And when I do, you know, restaurant works and things like that, <clears throat> it's, it's cool to watch people sitting there eating dinner and they turn around and they can't believe they go, Led Zeppelin, you know, why they got a meatball in their mouth or something. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's cool to take the music I grew up with that's really in my heart and apply the stuff that uh, I learned as a jazz musician. Because the, the, um, the repertoire for the jazz stuff, the old uh, music from the 40s and 50s, that doesn't feel as comfortable to me as, as the stuff in the 60s and 70s. It's just, I didn't grow up with it. So it's great for learning, but to play Jerome Kern and, and uh, George Gershwin, uh, I don't feel it as much as Frank Zappa and uh, you know Ian Anderson and people like that. So pretty much that's the evolution the first couple of years. <clears throat> and along the way, I discovered people like Pat Martino. That changed my life because I was basically playing all those old standards, uh, all the things you are, and I'll remember April. And they were great exercises. They were you know great chord progressions to, to try out scales and arpeggios and all that stuff. But I, I didn't really connect to the music. Uh, in 1973, I believe, I saw Pat Martino there was a person playing jazz with rock energy. And it, it, it just, it was a, a, a turning point in my musical life. Uh, subsequently, I'd say about 12 years ago, I actually went to Pat's house and we played together for six hours. So that, that was a highlight. Oh, wow. <clears throat> yeah, I, call, I called him. He said, come on over to Philadelphia. And I played the stick. I actually gave him a little stick lesson for about 10 minutes. And... Uh, <laughs> That was like a dream, you know, it's like playing with one of your idols. Um, right. We'll get to it later, but I did the same thing with Pat Metheny. I gave him a stick lesson and then we played together. So oh, those are cool. kind of turning points where these are people I admire, these are people who changed my life, and here I am playing with them. So I think, uh, I think Gene had a question he was going to ask. Well, I, I was relating very much to your, your jazz experience in that, you know, here's this awesome book full of tunes that are, you know, really nice to play when you're, you know, out and about and, and something, you know, for the folks, you know, I, I always think like, you know, my, my mom would love this song, you know, and, and you mentioned that song, um, what, something in April, what was the, I'll remember April. I'll remember April. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I like, I remember trying to learn that one actually, that one specifically, mm-hmm. but songs like in a sentimental mood and, um, round midnight and these songs that are so I- I- iconic, I-, I don't get the same satisfaction um, of playing. I mean, I still enjoy those. Those are fun to play. And like you said, good exercises, but playing um, like a Beach Boys song is like something that I grew up with. And I mm-hmm. have these memories of actually, you know, that was like one of the first records I could play on my own. I put it on the little blue record player and I, you know, set it to 33 and, 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 and it was, it, it, there's a certain joy to playing that song. It felt like it was closer to me and the, the, the feelings that, that Mike Love had when he was singing it, like that comes through in my playing, but it's so hard to put that into words. And, and, um, so those songs that you grew up with, you, you just feel closer to them. And when it comes time to play them, 
it that energy is definitely felt um, when you when you get to realize it through music. Hmm. Right, because music is two things. It's it's <clears throat> the, the music on the paper. It's the notes. It's the chords. But an A minor by George Gershwin is different than an A minor by by Dwayne Allman. And yeah. you have to feel the music and not just play the right chords. That's correct. And I think the jazz repertoire, I learned a lot, but I didn't feel the music. You know, the, the, the words didn't hit me at all. You know, I, I love you uh, sitting on a park bench and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'd rather play music that alluded to stuff in the 60s. Hippie stuff. Sure. So, yeah. Oh, Beach is that Boys, why you have all that long hair? Yeah, I, it's in my drawer right now. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a ponytail down to my uh, back, top of my back, to my top of my ass actually back then. <laughs> um, subsequently, biological uh, progressions have changed that. <laughs> fixed it. I really fixed hippie. it. Right? They they fixed that nagging hair problem. It, as absolutely. <laughs> Lemon pledge is the, is the new way to go. Well, you know, I mean, there are <laughs> lemon pledge. Nice. No, there are, there are those of us that think that, you know, it's, it's, you know, in the Bible, Samson had long hair and that was the source of his strength. Well, stick yeah. players ha have, you know, a good stick player has to have no hair. That's and, right. uh, I know there are exceptions. I can think of a couple of them right off the top of my head, but you know what? Uh, you're one well, of the, the top of your head. Is that a pun? Yeah. Uh -huh. Tom G, Tony. <laughs> Yeah, Steve. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Steve, Tom. Yeah, Tom. It's G not a requirement, said, yeah. but it does. Jim help, Meyer, for sure. Jim Meyer. Yeah. Just quick anecdote. I was at the airport going through security, and some guy saw the stick, you know, through the X-ray, and he looked at me. He goes, "Tony Levin," and I put my finger to my lips and I went, "Shh, don't don't say anything. Don't tell anybody." So for a minute, I was a little bit of an imposter. <laughs> star starstruck. Yes. Air, airline oh, wow. employee. I was just impressed that he, he knew Tony Levin. <laughs> TSA guy. Oh, wow. And he's, All right. he's okay. right down the way from you. He's right down the way from you. Is he not, Steve? He's, he... No, if you forgot, I, I moved to Arizona. I knew, that's right. Yes. So oh, he's, he's wow. somewhere, he's about 3,000 miles away. Just right down the way a little further. But you know what I'm saying, Steve Adelson, when you were in New York, you were right yes. down the way, right? He was. Yes, he was about, uh, actually, I went to his house to record one of my tracks uh, on a record that came out 2001. Okay. We went to, I went to his house. It was a trio, me, him, and Jerry Murata. Wow. So it was about two, two and a half hour drive. Was it two Chapman sticks or was he playing bass? Yes. Yeah. Wow. And the song was called Woodstick Sweet because we both played Woodsticks and it was a sweet. And it was sweet. Oh, wow. Yeah. He actually lived outside of Woodstock in a place called Kingston. That's right. Okay, which that. album is that on? It's on, uh, what the hell was it? So it's called Woodstick Sweet. You're like yeah. looking yeah. out the door there. You're like kind of outdoors. I can almost see it in my mind. I don't even remember what track it was on. Uh, <laughs> the answers inside. Okay, this I actually Tony was on two of my CDs. We did some. That was a trio, and then we did another trio with a, a, a different drummer. Uh, the the one with Jerry Murata was was fun, and we just we, we winged it if there's such a word. We just kind of made it up mm -hmm. on the spot. Uh, the other one was written out. I used a MIDI stick, 
uh, with Tony. And uh, it was kind of orchestral. Uh, mm. That was cool. I, I don't remember the name of that one. Oh, it was Planetarium, maybe? I don't okay. know. Okay. All right. Well, these are a couple of tunes I'm going to have to look up if I don't already have them. I think them. Planetarium is on an album called Stickology. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm I should know my own one. stuff, but, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. getting old. So, okay. So, you know, we kind of interrupted your story. Please continue. <laughs> uh, where was I? <laughs> I? I think, well, uh, you know, we were, we were talking about meeting these people that you oh. enjoyed playing with and, and, and right, right, we right. did cover so, a little bit about, yes. yeah, over the years, I've been very fortunate for different circumstances to play with some iconic people. Like I said, Pat Martino, Pat Matheny, uh, Les Paul. That was a cool story. Les uh, used to play at a club called the Iridium in Manhattan every Monday night. And one day, uh, my friend Muriel Anderson, who's a great guitar player, she said, come on down, I'll introduce you to Les, maybe you'll sit in. And I stopped eating my dinner and I jumped on my car and drove down there. And sure enough, I'm on stage with Les Paul. And he looks at my stick wow. and he says, uh, nice ironing board. Because <laughs> he was a vaudevillian, so he had to make fun of everything. Do you know? Did he ever try a stick? No, he didn't. But he did have an encounter with Emmett Chapman. Story the goes that encounter sounds kind of ominous. I don't know. What's that? Encounter is it like? Was it good? <laughs> like it sounds. It was good. not. It was a close encounter. Actually, <laughs> uh, he came to California to buy a house, and they had a mutual friend named Thumbs Carlisle. This is what I heard. I don't know if, what the exact is. So Thumbs Carlisle introduced Les to, to Emmett, and Emmett took him to see houses. He became the real estate agent. And I don't, I don't know what they talked <laughs> about so or whatever. Funny. But uh, yeah, uh, I don't think he got a commission, but he's, he showed him the neighborhood. Uh, and then when I played with Les, I played with him a bunch of times. A couple of times he's, he started asking me about the pickups because he's an inventor like Emmett was. And I actually had no idea. Oh, how is it? How is the coils? How is it? I had no idea. But we had some great times talking. So anyway, the first, I was on stage with him, and he said, let's play something. And the first song we played together was, was a song called Minor Swing by Django Reinhardt. And within 30 seconds, he leaned over to me. He said, you can come back anytime you want, which subsequently led to about 10 or 12 times that I came back on a Monday night. What happened you know, later in his years, Les had um, arthritis. So he invited a lot of guests to, to fill in to, to make up the time, the, uh, the music. So Jeff Beck played, Tommy Emanuel, Tony Bennett. He had some, some pretty heavyweight people. Uh, one time I did share a stage there with, with Tommy Emanuel. But when he leaned over and said, come back anytime you want, that was like, oh, I've made it. I can play with Les Paul. It was, it was great. Uh, so we always played minor swing, yeah. sleepwalk. Um, a lot of the people in the audience were, were, were tourists from all over the world, Nebraska, Missouri. So you couldn't get too esoteric. You had to kind of play user-friendly music. So that, that kind of music worked out very well. So I, I, over two years, I think we played together about 10 or 12 times. And it was cool oh, to talk awesome. to him in the, in, the, in the green room in the back because he would tell us stories about being with Wes Montgomery and Django Reinhardt. He was you know, part of the history of music. So it was, it was cool to, to listen to him talk and, and, and be backstage with a whole bunch of different people. It was a great, great experience to play with him. So, you know, we've kind of we've kind of been skipping around. How did the stick come in? I mean, so you were you, you know you were you, you were learning to play guitar. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't really churning your butter. Uh, well, no, I shouldn't say that. You were learning to play the guitar, but 
<laughs> you were learning to play the guitar, but at right. some point, you know, at some point the stick entered and, and how did that come about? Uh, very simple. I was playing guitar and I was always looking to play some new stuff. I, I did a lot of finger picking. I was doing, um, like Leo Kotke kind of things and old blues, Mississippi, John Hurt. I love that kind of stuff. The first complex song I learned at, at the time it was complex was Alice's Restaurant. And I thought that was phenomenal. After a while, it was like no big deal. And I think it was 1983, I was in Greenwich Village, Manhattan. And on the corner of Bleecker and LaGuardia, there's a crowd of like two or 300 people. And I can't, I can't figure out what's going on. And I look over the top and there's this dude playing a guitar with two hands on the neck. And I had never seen that before. And it turned out to be Stanley Jordan. And I was mesmerized. I went home immediately, started tapping on the guitar. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And six months later, I met Emmett Chapman at a, a guitar convention in Manhattan and decided if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to tap, I need this instrument. So that was the introduction to tapping with Stanley Jordan. And then I came across Emmett Chapman and I knew about the stick, but I had never met him. It was the only time he was in New York and uh, very fortuitous that he was there. Uh, Steve Oz was with him. I tried the stick out. It wasn't easy to get one. Uh, continuation of the story, Sam Ash Music, which is a big chain right now, they only had about five or six stores in, in the New York area. They carried Chapman sticks. They had one that was $900. And I kept going back to the store to try it out. I didn't even have $900 because I was a struggling musician, hippie. And uh, Paul Ash, one of the owners, said, I want you to have this instrument. He was a big promoter of music besides being a, a, a corporate guy. And he said, I'm putting $900 in the, in the cash register. Take it home. Pay me when you can. Wow. Sam Ash said that and did that? Paul, Paul Ash. Sam is oh the father. He was Ash. passed away. Paul Ash. So I, you know, if, if not for him, I wouldn't be talking to you guys right now. That's so, an amazing, I never knew that. That's an amazing story. Oh, no, it's a great story. Wow. And he, he could have just, you know, most of the time, especially corporates, you know, who, who in Guitar Center is going to do that for you? Yeah. So I took it home. No doubt. Uh, after about a month, I, I decided I loved it. Wow. I sold my stamp collection, my coin collection, uh, <laughs> whatever I could do. And I, I paid him back $900. Wow. That's so cool. Oh, wow. And, so and at the cool. time, it was just going to be a side thing. And I'm still playing guitar. I'm just doing the stick. And after a couple of months, a year, I don't know, I, I said, I'm not even playing my guitars anymore. So eventually, a lot of my good guitars, I had a Gibson Super 400, uh, beautiful guitar, jazz guitar. I sold that. Unfortunately, I sold it for, I think, $1,400. It's worth about $18,000 right now. And I, I kept a few guitars, obviously, because I was teaching guitar still in my studio. But uh, I got one stick and then eventually another stick. And uh, we could talk about that later on. But yeah, if it wasn't for Paul Ash, I would still be, I'd probably be playing banjo or something. So I don't know. But uh, Maybe that, that's how I got into the stick. Watching Stanley Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, Steve, what, oh. um, I mean, that's a pretty major step, right? I mean, I, I think a lot of us who play stick have done that where we're like, we, we were pretty mm -hmm. heavily invested in another instrument and we found the stick and we changed over. And like, is there something specific for you that was like, this is what I need to play? No, no I, I needed to tap. You know, I, I thought yeah, that was okay. like the next step in my evolution. So I was tapping on the guitar. I didn't buy the stick saying I'm changing my, my instrument. I bought it. 
I thought it'd be just cool to, to practice with it. I'm, I was still going to play guitar. Little by little, I just saw the, um, all the possibilities of the stick. I didn't see them, but I, I realized there are a lot of possibilities. So I was just investigating as much as I could. And little by little, I wasn't playing guitar anymore. So it wasn't like I'm switching instruments. It was going to be a side instrument. But as an evolution, it became the main instrument. And the guitar didn't hold my interest as much. The, the decision was to buy it. Yeah, so, so it, was, it was more like it, it did the function you wanted to be able to do on guitar. The tapping part, yes. Yeah, not, not yeah, just, yeah. Obviously, it, yeah. I, can, I couldn't play, you know, James Brown funky uh, ninth chords on it. Right. And, I, you know, I had a, a good vocabulary of, from playing the guitar. I had been playing guitar then 14, 15 years. So I had a good vocabulary of chords, arpeggios, yeah. uh, good techniques. And I said, what if I bring this to the stick? And little by little, I was, you know, the, there was so much to learn on the stick. The guitar, after a while, you, you, you do like this dead ends. You know, you, you're looking for something new, but it's all been done already. With the stick, it was just like an open door. And investigating all the paths I could take, I'm still doing that. <laughs> I still feel like we're barely getting started here, you know, scratching the surface. Steve, one of the things that you kind of are known for is uh, is the Long Beach Jazz Festival. And I'm interested in knowing how that came about because my understanding is that you're the guy behind that. Uh, and so I was wondering maybe if you could if you could, you know, give us a lead into that and how that got off the ground and and where it stands now, given that you no longer live in the New York area. Uh, good question, Victor. So what happened was in 2003. Uh, a friend of mine came to me and said, I have a $5,000 grant. This is in uh, Long Beach, New York, not Long Beach, California. Uh, I want to start a little jazz festival. And I don't, he said, I don't know any musicians, so you could be artistic director. And I knew some, but I wasn't about to you know, call Pat Metheny or anything like that. So I called mostly locals, but good players locally. And uh, the festival was going to be in September. We had started like in January. To, to produce it and I think around March or April he calls me and says I'm moving to Florida the festival is yours now and uh, my reaction <laughs> you got it dumped on your lap <laughs> my, my, yeah my reaction was a little little profanity like what the you know and I said alright I guess I have to do it you know the money's there I already contacted people and contracted people and uh, we went through with it and I was on stage in September my friend was in Florida you know doing whatever he's doing and right in the middle of it, I said, this is fun. Let's do it again next year. Uh, next year became 16 years after a while. So it wasn't my intention to do it, but I did do it. Wow. And uh, it just kept, it was a lot of fun. You know, I, I didn't even get paid. It was all community service. I didn't make a dime. Basically, you know, at the beginning, I was hiring 
I guess I was, you know, uh, I wore all the caps. I, I was hiring people. I was getting T-shirts done. I was making posters, doing publicity, raising money. And at the beginning, it was mostly local people because we didn't have a reputation. And it's very hard to call celebrities and say, you know, I can pay a couple hundred bucks, come on down. But eventually it grew. You know, word got out, this is a cool thing to do. It was a free festival. We weren't charging the public. Uh, players started coming in because they realized that there was no profit motive and they weren't dealing with a, with a club owner or a, 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 whoever. So they just had fun. So it grew from locals to people like Omar Hakim and Rachel Z. Rachel uh, obviously has played with a bunch of stick players as well. She played with Peter Gabriel. Omar's played with everybody from Weather Report to Sting. Uh, they became friends after a while. Stanley Jordan actually did it. Um, Anton Fig, drummer from The Letterman Show. Willie has done it. Jeff Berlin. Just trying to think. Uh, Charlie, Charlie Hunter. Charlie Hunter, man. Charlie Hunter, right? Charlie Hunter did it. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of guitar players. Osnoy did it many times. My friend Dean Brown. Uh, he was a local Long Beach guy at the time. Dean is on like a thousand records. He's a great guitar player. Uh, Bucky Pizzarelli. Anyway, a, a whole bunch of different names. And it grew and grew. And then after a while, people, people were calling me. I didn't have to go find them. And it just grew to where I had to like turn a lot of people down. Friends who were great players. But we only did, I think, 14 sets of music. I, get, I still get solicitations. I'm not even doing it anymore. But from around the country, you know, they, I guess they look it up and they see that there's this festival. So I get a, somebody says, I represent uh, so-and-so. We want to play your festival. Yeah. The, oh, the cool part was agents. we only, we didn't pay very much. Yeah. You know, a couple of hundred bucks. And, and I'm getting people who usually get like $10,000. But they just liked yeah. it so much. Um, it was a lot of fun. I'm still getting people calling to, to, to play the festival. Wow. But it was it was a joy to play. And I was guaranteed to play a set or two myself because I was booking it. So I couldn't turn myself down. So that was cool. <laughs> and, I, and I got to play with these people there. You know, I, I sat in with people. Um, Frank Vignola was another one. Uh, ben Lacey was a crowd favorite. If anybody doesn't know Ben Lacey, he's, he's one of my inspirations. Um, subsequently, actually, one of my records, I think, Stickology... A lot of these guys were in town for the festival. I snuck them off to a studio and we recorded a track or two. So that that album has a whole bunch of guests oh, wow. that had just happened to be doing the festival. So we just went off to the side for a couple of hours and, and did a track or two. That was Ben Lacey was one of them. Oh, that's cool. I did play with Stanley Jordan, but it, it, that wasn't recorded for anything. But there is a video floating around somewhere. So anyways, it was a joy. It was, it was, it was a lot of work. It, unbelievable to me that for 16 years, 14 sets of music, over a thousand musicians, never had a problem. Nobody had an attitude, no, no situation problems, no bounce checks, no nothing. It was just unbelievable how smoothly it went. And the planning, we didn't even have a stage crew. Whoever was sitting in the front row as audience members, if we had to move a piano or something, I just called them up and said, move this piano. That, that was our stage crew, the front row. Um, oh, wow. The town loved That's it. Great. You know, it's a small town. It was, uh, it's a beach community. It sounds like a lot of the success is because it was grassroots. You know, you weren't dealing with, a, you weren't doing it yeah. through a production company or, or. Right. That's cool. And it wasn't a business. It wasn't, it wasn't, I had no idea what to, what to do. It just, it fell into place. You just, you go with your instincts. 
So I stopped looking. After about 15 years, I said I had enough. I just, I didn't want to put the time into it. I took one year off and they didn't do it. And then they called me back. I did one more year and then we moved. So there was no more festival plus COVID happened. So it was going to be shut down anyway. Subsequently, again, about two weeks ago, somebody called me. They said, we heard there's a rumor. You might want to come back and do it. I said, the rumor is false, but if somebody raises the money, because that was always the hardest part, if somebody raises the money, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. So it might still happen next year. You never know. Um, but the hardest part was raising money because we didn't charge at the door and I had to pay the musicians and, and uh, get the T-shirts and all that kind of stuff. So there, there was a budget that had to be had. So, you know, some local businesses and stuff tri chipped in. Uh, it just unbelievably worked out uh, logistically, musically, the stuff was high, high top notch. Uh, another player was Edmar Castaneda, incredible harp player. Standing ovations for every set of music it was great. You know, it was, it was a joy to bring it to the community. It's not a jazz community, and people just loved it. You know, so it was a very successful, very rewarding part of my uh, musical career and life experience. Yeah. Well, then. Let me segue that then. I mean, that was when you lived in Long Beach or in that area, in the New York area. Well, now you've moved into, uh, you know, a warmer climate and stuff, and you are still finding yourself playing uh, in, you know, uh, I guess I'll call it high profile. Uh, I mean, because I understand last month you did a you did a gig at the Musical Instrument Museum. Mm hmm. So what's your connection with that organization? How'd that happen? So when we lived in New York, we used to come out to Arizona two or three times a year. Uh, if you don't know the logistics, you're flying to Sky Harbor Airport uh, right in the center of Phoenix. And we used to rent a car and drive straight up two hours to Sedona, which is beautiful, um, red rocks, and we used to go hiking. But on our way, there's a place called the Musical Instrument Museum. And we used to visit it occasionally. And they have, I mean, it's a world-class museum. They have hundreds of exhibits, instruments from all around the world. Uh, it's, it's segmented into like Africa exhibit and American exhibit and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's an un unbelievable museum. Uh, so one year I went to administration. I said, how come there's no Chapman stick exhibit? And they go, we're working on Aha. it. We're working with Mr. Chapman. I said, you know what? It's never going to happen. Mr. Chapman's too busy. Let's do it. So I got involved trying to get this exhibit in there. And we did it. There's actually an exhibit. And the way the exhibit is set up, they'll, they'll have a bunch of instruments. So there's like six Chapman sticks, different models in the exhibit. And then there are about four or five videos, 30 seconds, 40 seconds. Every exhibit is like that. So if okay. you go to the didgeridoo exhibit, there's like four or five videos of people playing it around the world. Uh, so we put the exhibit in and I said, okay, next step, Emmett Chapman is still here because all these other instruments, Adolf Sachs, John Philip Sousa, these guys are gone. Let's bring Emmett Chapman in. So I think about five or six years ago, we agreed and we had Chapman stick day at the museum. We oh, did a clinic so cool. during the day and a concert at night and a bunch of stick players in the neighborhood showed up. And matter of fact, some people actually flew out from New York. And it was, it was great. Ooh. So that happened. Emmett was very happy to uh, another validation of his instrument. He's now in a museum. Right. So, you know, years went by. 
And a friend of mine who lives here in Phoenix, his name is Bill Dutcher, he plays a harp guitar. Uh, we met uh, under crazy circumstances, but he's very generous and he's helped me get some gigs here. So he plays at the MIM Musical Instrument Museum twice a year. He does these string extravaganzas. So he said, let's do it. So it was me on my Chapman stick. He played a harp guitar, two different harp guitars, and a Hawaiian kind of pedal steel guitar. And a gentleman named William Eaton who builds these incredible harp guitars sometimes with like 30 strings on them. So it was a, a multi-string extravaganza. This was about actually three <laughs> weeks ago. So of all the instruments on the stage, you had the one with the fewest strings on yeah, it? Yeah, I had tw only 12 <laughs> strings. I, was the, I, I actually announced it to the audience. I go, I'm the most normal guy here. I mean, you, you got to see these instruments. They're incredible. You got to be the first. I, said, I have an ordinary instrument, <laughs> something. So uh, it, was a cool, it was a great concert. It, it, the, the auditorium at the MIM holds 300 people. The best sounding room I've ever been in. And it was sold out show, and uh, it was great. I hope to get back there again. But they have world-class acts there. I mean, we're, we're actually going to see Stanley Jordan there in three weeks. Uh, Kenny Barron, a friend of mine, plays piano. He's playing there. Uh, Lady Smith Black Mombazo is playing there. We're going to go see them, too. Uh, Lyle Lovett has played there. Uh, Jake Shimabukuro, the ukulele player, played there. Um, they have world-class acts. I mean, uh, Chris Bodie, Lee Rittenauer. So, uh, again, I was fortunate to, to be asked to play there. And it was a great concert. I loved it. Uh, best sounding room I've ever played in. So that's, I mean, I'm not connected to the men, but I feel fortunate that my video's in, in, in the exhibit. So I'm actually in the museum. And uh -huh. I've played there a couple of times. Uh, more times when I played, I lived in New York. I actually played there, I think, two or three times. Uh, they wow. flew me out. But now that I live here, it's much, much, more, much more convenient. And they, again, they were shut down for a year and a half because of COVID. Right, uh, and they present about three hundred concerts a year, which is cool. Oh, so wow. it, it's on two levels. You have the museum. Is that? That's pretty much every night. Take one night off a week. It sounds like wow. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> exactly. That's, that's um, a big, you know, big schedule. Yeah. So, the the museum's Chapman Stick exhibit. You right. had said that all the exhibits have, they have video, a few videos of their instruments mm -hmm. being played. Do you know what the videos are that are being played uh, in the Chapman Stick exhibit? Yes, I do. It's obviously Emmett Chapman, Bob Culbertson, yes. Tony Levin, uh, and uh, myself. Okay. But all right. the That's weird cool. part was at first, I, they put the exhibit in, and I, I was still in New York, and I came back to see it. And they had a fourth video. It wasn't me. And I went to the administration. I go, what, what are you doing? I helped you put the exhibit up, and my video is not in there. So they added my video onto it. But at first, I was, oh, okay. I was dissed and pissed. <laughs> dissed and pissed. <laughs> uh, but now I'm in the museum, hopefully for longevity. And they have, right. I think, six sticks. I don't know if they were on consignment or Emmett donated or sold it to them. I don't know how it works. Um, mm -hmm. I think the museum is um, started and funded mostly by the, the CEO of Target Stores. Um, okay. But they, they have uh, like signs all over the place. Like Santana says, this is the greatest museum ever. And uh, Bruce Hornsby says this and that. I mean, the major players have been there. They have big fundraisers and stuff like that. So it's, I, I feel fortunate we live about a half an hour from there. So we go there regularly to see the exhibits 
and to, to see concerts. It's, it's, I advocate anybody passing through, you have to stop there. All right. It's, it's wonderful. You know, Victor, I was wondering if we could use this as a segue for the, for the move. So I know that, um, you know, while you were in, in, in Long Beach, Steve, you know, you, you went through a lot there. I know there was the, there was the, the reconstruction of the home and, you know, all these things that were going on. Um, and, and I, I, I recall a, a lot of activity on your, at least on your social media where, you were, you know, in so many different restaurants and cafes and like openings and, and then you picked up and you, you moved to Arizona. And so, um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, the, the, the change and how that's maybe affected your music or just your life in general, your perspective and. Okay. That's a good question. Uh, so we lived in Long Beach for, Let's see, 1983, I don't know, over, over 30 years, maybe 40 years. Uh, originally, I lived in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, then we moved to Long Beach, lived there a long time. We were pretty important in the community. My wife was on the city council, so she made heavy decisions. Um, I did the jazz festival, played all the clubs. So we knew everybody. It was a very small town of like 40,000 people. And, uh, you know, our, my son grew up there, so we knew people from school. Uh, what year was it? 2011 or 12? Uh, there was this thing called Hurricane Sandy and it wiped out the town. I mean, there was nothing left of people's houses. Houses still stood. There wasn't as much wind damage as ocean damage. We had five feet of water, salt water in our house. Uh, fortunately, I got all my instruments out. Not, not all my amplifiers, but all my instruments. And we were homeless for about a year. Uh, a friend of ours actually put us up for the whole year in their house. And, uh, we were there for the reconstruction of the, of the city. Uh, my wife being on the city council, uh, there was a boardwalk, two mile boardwalk that got wiped out. She was, uh, integral in getting $44 million to, to build a new boardwalk. So we, we left our mark there. Um, mm. we still had a jazz festival, even though there was no city and that was very welcome. Uh, the city is thriving right now. And, uh, I guess two years ago, a little over two years ago, uh, we decided for some personal reasons to, to leave. And we knew Arizona, so we came looking for houses in Arizona. We thought we might move to Sedona. We actually uh, bought a house there a couple of years ago. It, it turned out to be an investment house. Uh, we have a, a tenant in there. And we found this house in Phoenix, Arizona that's three times the house size of the house in my, size of the house we had in New York. Um, in the back of the house, there's a casita, which means little house. And that's my studio where I teach and, and practice and all that. So it's it's away from the house, so I don't have to bother my wife in, in our house. So uh, logistically, it just worked out. You know, the, the weather-wise, weather uh, right now it's December 4th, and it's going to be 80 degrees today. So a stark in contrast York, to, to Long Beach, New York. <laughs> yes, yes. A new world. <laughs> Yes, I, we don't have snow shovels here. I don't have a winter coat. So uh, I, uh, the opposite, is, you know, in the summertime, the first summer we were here, it was 115, like many, many days. So that, that sucked. Ugh. And then also we moved here and COVID hit. So my intention was to move here, network with musicians, get some gigs in restaurants, clubs and stuff. And then COVID hit and they said, uh, you're not going anywhere. So... 
subsequently, it was a blessing in a sense. I wasn't gigging and making money and meeting people, but I went in my casita and I said, let me explore my Chapman stick. I have all the time in the world. You know, when you play restaurants and you play concerts, you work on repertoire because you have to present tunes. So whether it's an original tune or a sting cover song or whatever, you're working on progressions and melodies and all that. So for the last two years, I've been working on actually exploring the instrument a lot more. And I made quite a few discoveries that you don't necessarily make if you're, you're playing repertoire. Uh, when I used to play restaurants, I would just play three hours in a row, no breaks, and run through 100 songs. And that was a good, good, good practice for, for, for learning material, but not for exploring the instrument. And right. I think the instrument hasn't even been touched yet. I mean, it's, it's still brand new. Uh, there aren't that many people working on it. Not like guitar where, you know, there's millions and millions of people. And every time I turn on YouTube, there's somebody else doing something crazy. Um, the stick has a long way to go. And then uh, all you guys out there, you know, on this interview, uh, Gene and, and Victor and Claire and Rodrigo, you're all part of, you're all pioneers. So uh, keep exploring. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> no, that is, that is, I think the most, the, the, the most beautiful way of looking at the instrument, because that was certainly how the instrument was intended to be brought into the world. And that is yes. without any sort of preconception or notion. And <clears throat> one of the things that I've found, and I find myself doing it still, is I compare it to other instruments and that just has to stop. You know, you have to look at the instrument and say, it's, it's not like this, or it's not like that. Or is it, you know, is it like a sitar? You know, no, it's not like a sitar. You know, it's, it's not like anything. It, you may draw some comparisons to other instruments based on what it's, on what it looks like, but really the idea was to create something new and who better than to do that than this swashbuckling guitarist who had a, a degree in, you know, I, I think, <laughs> it, you know, he was in aerospace, right? I mean, he was he was in the army and he was, you know, doing things with sonic. I, I don't remember the, the exact details of what Emmett was studying while he was in the services, but he came in with without any like preconceptions or ideas. He just knew that he wanted to make music in a new way. And it happened in the sixties, Steve, like, so mm -hmm. the, like the timing was perfect. It was this perfect storm. Uh, and what better way than to, you know, to, to honor the music and the, you know, the, the, the people that made it great than to, you know, tear down these boundaries and borders of what came before you and make it your own. Exactly. I tell that to all my students that he invented it to accommodate a technique, the tapping technique that he discovered. But he also said, here's an instrument, go explore, go create. And when I teach the first, my motto is when, when, you, when you're exploring the instrument is to have this motto, what if? What if I put my left hand over here? What if I use my thumb? What if I play high notes? As opposed to being locked into when you play guitar, this is how you play the chords. This is how you strum. Uh, there's so many things you can explore on it and discover. And, and for those two years during the COVID, I, I, I found so many things, leaps and bounds over what I did the first bunch of years. 
So it, 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 in a sense, it was satisfactory. Give us me. an example of like one of those like one o'clock epiphanies where you're like, uh, you know, it's like one in the morning and you're like, oh, I never knew that. You okay. Know, actually, when you said epiphany, my, was there- I'll, I'll, I'm going to give a plug. Actually, I, I play through Epiphany amplifiers. It's almost spelled like epiphany. Yeah. But I play through Epiphany. I'm going to give him a little plug right now. It's a great, great amplifier. But the first thing that I think th- that opens eyes and opens doors is that all stick players seem to play the left hand with the bass and the right hand on the guitar side, for lack of, you know, to simplify the terms. So the left hand is, is, is the accompaniment part and the right hand is playing melody. And very rarely do we cross over and play both sides at the same time. There's like this imaginary wall going down the fat string. You don't cross over the <laughs> wall. Tra- yeah. So I've been playing chords with my left hand where I'll play some bass strings and then reach over and play some melody strings with the same hand and do the same thing with my right hand. So just geographically finding different locations to put your hand opens up different uh, possibilities. You're not restricted. Uh, I've seen people play two-handed bass. Very few people play two-handed melodies where you're playing counterpoint. On cross, that's happened, that, that's happened where you put your left hand on the melody side and right hand on the bass side. Uh, different techniques which are in my book, like the, the claw, uh, something I call the waterfall. So I'm learning different techniques without getting too specific about it, putting hands in different places, trying to simulate guitar strumming. I mean, Emmett's never said you can't strum the stick. So in order to play two things at one time, I don't hold the chord down and strum. I'll hold the chord down and use other fingers of the same hand to strum it, which still frees up your left hand. Uh, using your thumbs, which is like the secret the secret uh, weapon that you can use on, on either side. So, you know, without, without demonstrating it too much, it, it's just you have 10 fingers, you have all these strings, any hand, any finger can go anywhere on the stick. And I think a lot of times people restrict themselves to what's obvious. And the obvious thing is, you know, a triad or a simple bass line in the left hand and a melody in the right hand. Uh, there's a lot more than that. I, I think the strength of the stick is harmonic possibilities. For sure. You can play melodies. You can simulate Santana. You can simulate David Gilmour. David Gilmour's tone can't be duplicated. Victor Wooten's bass parts are hard to duplicate. Ron Carter's bass parts are hard to duplicate. So bass-wise, guitar-wise, maybe we, we it's hard to achieve that, but harmonically... Nothing beats the stick yeah. for complex chords, for, for you know, playing eight, eight and nine note chords. It's unbelievable what can be done. So th- those are the kind of things I've been discovering. I haven't necessarily formulated it yet and put it into songs. But when I, when I played at the MIM, I played all original music and I, and I used a lot of those discoveries that I had done, found over the last two years. And it went over very well. So uh, yes, indeed, it's Emmett said, here's an instrument, go explore. More than just the tapping, it's more than the technique. It's, it's like having, I've, I've said this in other interviews too, not the eight crayon box or the 12 crayon box, but the infinite crayon box. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. There is no canvas. Like your life is the canvas. Like, you know, start coloring now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <All right. laughs> and your experiences and, and 
take down the borders, say, okay, uh, in this such and such a book, this is where you play chords, but you know, do, do something that's different. Uh, another example, when most of us play chords, I would say that we play what I call closed chords, which means you play three strings in a row, major chords, minor chords. I'm exploring more chords where you actually skip strings. So if you want to try this on the melody side, play a chord where you're playing strings one, three, and five. People just don't go there because it's not comfortable. Well, that's true. Yeah, no, um, you know, I'm sitting here looking at my hands, trying to figure that out a little bit, and uh, yeah, that would take some some learning because you know, yeah, like like I say, my habit is you know, this finger goes here, my next finger goes on the next string, my next finger goes on the next string, and you know, maybe mm -hmm. I'll hit a fourth string or I'll double stop to add another <laughs> string. But skipping strings on a chord is not something that I I'm trying to think if I've ever done that in anything I've played. I probably have. I just right. don't realize it but it's 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 an odd thing and it's never the first thing that comes to mind never right right yeah well that, like you said there's epiphanies i'd be sitting here practicing i go well i'm playing the first second and third strings what if i skip the second string and then skip the fourth string and then look at the notes i'm playing and it actually comes out to be quite a great chord and if you play a real easy example if you play skipping strings on the same fret. Let's say you're on the 10th fret and you play the first string 10th fret, the third string 10th fret, and the fifth string 10th fret. You're actually playing one, two, three of a major scale, which is really like a major nine chord because you're playing one and three and the two is, is the nine. I don't want to get too technical. And it's a beautiful chord because you're playing one, two, three, but they're separated by sevenths instead of seconds because you're displacing the notes. I don't know if that makes sense. It does make sense. And, and, you know, a lot, a lot of new technique can be discovered in the left hand as well, which I've always found oh, sure. to be the most, you know, challenging part of unlearning the guitar and the bass is the, you know, the, the ascending fifths. Um, and uh, I, I've always uh, appreciated and enjoyed mm -hmm. what you do, you know, in, in the, in the way that you play bass on the stick or you interpret a bass line on the Chapman stick. And that's, Really what's great about the stick is it doesn't have to be like what you imagine a bass player or a guitar player would do. It's what a stick player would do. And so a lot of times this has mm -hmm. to be approached very gingerly with, you know, bassists and guitarists. But once that's that's clear to them and they, you know, you could find this kind of alliance as as opposed to like trying to move in on their parts. And I think that you've you've done that so gracefully. Like, oh, I, I'm going to play the bass part, but watch this also, you know, and it kind of keeps the guitar players on guard, you know, like stay in your lane, you know, but, um, I, I think you've done that very, you've, you've navigated that like very, like gracefully, I think, and that you can nail those bass lines, uh, and also, you know, comp the chords so well and, and just complement a song, right? Like make the song all it can be with this particular instrument in your hand. Right. Well, I, was, I alluded before to, to Ben Lacey. I don't know if you've ever seen Ben. <clears throat> but Ben, the first time I saw Ben was at a, at a NAMM show, which is the, the uh, musical convention in California. Uh, actually, it's quite an amusing story. I think I was doing some demos for, for Stick Enterprises. And a friend of mine who owned Brian Moore Guitars or represented them came over. He said, you got to come over. You got to see this guy, Ben Lacey. 
he's doing demos in my booth. And begrudgingly, I walked over because I oh, some guy who plays fast or some crap like that, and a shredder. And he was playing, I went over there, he's playing Roundabout by Yes. All the parts, the bass part, the keyboard part, the guitar part, the vocal part, the drums, all on the guitar. And I literally dropped to my knees and my words were, who the f*** are you? What the hell are you doing? <laughs> and immediately I said, I, I bought him a hamburger. I had to talk to him. We became friends. And he's my inspiration because when I hear him play on six strings, he's doing all those parts. And I've tried to bring that to the Chapman stick. I said, well, if he could do it with six strings, I should be able to do it with 12. Right. And he literally plays, when he, he plays Asia by Steely Dan, he plays Steve Gadd's drum solo on the, on the guitar in between the horn sections and all that stuff. And, and that's wow. what I try to achieve is not one part or two part, but maybe three parts and four parts and, and to keep the groove going. A lot of times with the stick, it's not, it's not a, a groove friendly instrument because we're not, we're not strumming it. We're not hitting it. We're tapping it. And a lot of stuff kind of comes out pretty, in my opinion. Yeah. Pretty and new age is kind of simple. Sure. But to, to get into like a James Brown thing, yeah. it's not that easy. That's true. That's true. The, the immediacy yeah. of the left hand or the right hand, there's no, the, the, it's just, a, it's hard to explain, but having two hands on a fretboard with that kind of immediacy and sensitivity is, is really hard when you get into playing that type of music. I, 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 I agree mm -hmm. for, like wholeheartedly. All right. Yeah, I know it's, it can be done. Obviously we've got players that, that, that do it. And, you know, some of them are here in this interview. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, that is a, but that's part of the stick being its own instrument too. So. Right. Well, I, and I think if you do a cover tune or, or, or a style of music, you have to have the integrity of the music. So for, for instance, I've done a couple of clinics at like last one was in interlock and uh, we played um, pick up the pieces by the average white band. And oh, yeah. the first chord, the introduction is pretty funky. The guy's strumming the chord with the, with a pick. And I showed everybody, if you tap it, even with a bass line, it just doesn't make it. It just goes, eh, eh, eh. I mean, it's hard to describe with my voice. You need that up and down guitar thing. So I've developed a way to do that, to strum the guitar part on the melody side while you're still playing a funky bass with the left hand. But that was like, you know, necessity uh, to, to come up with a technique to make the sound, to make to make it sound real. Um, I'll give you another example. The first time I heard somebody play Moon Dance on the stick, I was very excited. It was a, it was a vinyl record album, and I said, "Oh, this is going to be great." And it was, for lack of a better word, very anemic because they were playing the first two chords, A minor, B minor, like like an arpeggio, and that's not what the record does. The record swings, and it's an upright bass player playing a, a, a cool walking bass line. So you can't get away with just playing the chords. You have to, I mean, you can do your own version, but if, if it's less than the original, that that's not an improvement. So when, when I cover a tune, I try to keep the integrity of the song. If I'm doing Cashmere by Led Zeppelin, you need that heavy hit. Da -da -da, da -da -da. If you're just tapping it, it's not happening. So it's not about just hitting the right notes. It's about <clears throat> figuring out a, a, a technique that the stick can give you that makes the sound, the music sound uh, valuable and worthwhile. Yeah, and not gimmicky. Like a lot of times I, th I right. think like people are, are new to the instrument or 
um, that there's this expectation that it's going to make it, you know, sound progressive or it's going to, you know, I'm going to play super fast or, you know, I, I'm going to play both the guitar and the bass line. And it's kind of like, Hey, I, I think what you need is like some quality time with the instrument to discover mm-hmm. how you want to interpret this music. And, um, it, it's taken me a lifetime right. to figure out what that actually is or what, what that sounds like. Um, I'm agreeing with everything you're saying, like 110% music to my ears. Yeah. Well, when you say a lifetime, I just feel I've been playing this thing now for 37, 38 years, and I still practice three to five hours a day. I feel like I need another 130 years. Yeah. It's just so much to learn. (laughs) So like I said, this, this two years of COVID, I learned a lot because I sat down and I said, all right, let's, let's research, not just play songs. But let's research what this instrument has and what it offers technique-wise, harmonically, and uh, found some cool discoveries. So it's been very rewarding. Uh, Again, if you play guitar, you're going to follow somebody else's path. You're going to be Jimi Hendrix or Wes Montgomery or uh, Segovia. Chances are you're not going to find something new. I find something new on the stick every day. It's that that kind of instrument. It's it's allowed. And it's still so early on yeah. in its development that we're we're still discovering, you know, and both like the alto and the SG12. There's you know all kinds of new possibilities for for its role in in different types of music that aren't quite so bass mm-hmm. heavy. So different sure. options. Yeah. Right. Steve, we've talked a lot about, obviously, the stick and, and sort of how it has shaped a lot of your musical life. Um, and, and you keep talking how it has really changed things for you and how you play. Um, and obviously, you know, Emmett passed away recently. Has that caused you to reflect on things either with the stick or with Emmett specifically? Anything you'd like to share with us? Big thanks to Emmett because he changed my life. I mean, if I was playing guitar, I still have... I'd- have satisfaction, but I'd be one of 100 million guitar players. Besides the exploratory part and satisfaction in finding the music, uh, because it's unique, the instrument itself, it's opened up a lot of opportunities. I've traveled to Europe and Japan and Turkey and, uh, you know, you kind of stand out. I'd see people in the street where I used to live and they didn't even know my name, but they would simulate holding a stick. That's what I was known for. So. It, it became part of my uh, personality, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. it's given me a lot of opportunities because I'm the weird guy with, the, with this weird instrument. Um, so big debt of gratitude to <laughs> oh, Emmett. Man, for, none of us knows what that's like. 
<laughs> You're just family to us, though. Right. The stick just guy. that, like that weird uncle. Yes. Right. Like, <laughs> we're all yeah. that weird uncle or aunt, really. <laughs> yeah, I'm right. I'm the weird guy. So big thanks to Emmett for for giving it to everybody. Saying he, I mean, it amazes me how much dedication he put into this thing, where he basically sacrificed other aspects of his life. He worked 24/7, and was wanted to put out sticks. It wasn't about making money. It wasn't a business. It was a dream to get the instrument out and and help people explore this technique he discovered. So his dedication is is monumental. You know, it, it was uh, it's affected a lot of people's lives. It's changed music and people's attitude towards music. Uh, big debt of gratitude towards him and 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 the company and his and Yuta as well. If anybody doesn't know how it worked, I mean, he literally worked 24-7 and would take a nap when he, when he was tired. And I think he had like one meal a day because he was always building. And, uh, we visited him many times and it, 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 that's what happened. He was always building, always doing something. So I think he's affected a lot of people's lives. He's changed music. Um, I think later on people will appreciate it more. It's kind of like the saxophone. The saxophone, while Adolf Sax was alive, was not appreciated. So maybe one day, I don't, maybe this, maybe the stick will be uh, produced more. Maybe it'll be mass produced more. I don't know how that's going to go eventually. But when there's more sticks in people's hands, maybe it'll become more uh, universal. I don't know. I hope it does. Sure. Mm. Yeah, I, I just think that he, like I said, the contribution was discovering the technique building an instrument to accommodate the technique and then giving it to the world. And basically he donated it to the world. He wasn't making a lot of money. Uh, he wanted people to have it and to tap and to, to, to create. That was the mission. It was never to be a multi-millionaire. It was to offer a new way to play an instrument and make creative music. And if anybody knows Emmett's music, it was creative. He, he uh, had his own way of playing for sure. So if I can, if I can put you on the spot a little bit, you know, so you spent time with Emmett, uh, you know, face to face in a room, whether it was playing or talking or whatever. Is there one particular moment or something he said or something he did uh, in your presence that kind of, that kind of stands out to you? Um... I mean, it was, it, it was accumulative. I, I also, not just... Musically, I used to write for a couple of magazines and I interviewed him a couple of times. Actually, a funny highlight, which I, I talked about at the service, for the funeral service. Um, I had been in Hawaii and saw uh, a friend, Joe Conti. I don't know if anybody knows Joe Conti, but he had a, a quarter fretless Chapman stick. It was 10 strings, and I think three of them were fretless, which is kind of a weird setup. And I loved it. He's an amazing player, without comparison. Without comparison. He's a yeah. great player. Joe's great. great player. And I called him and I said, can you make me a, a half fretless stick or a quarter fretless stick? And at the time he said, I'm just too busy. I'm so far behind. I, I can't do custom work. And this is kind of the story I told at the service. And maybe a year later I say, can you make me a fretless Chapman stick? No, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. He's getting even busier. This has gone on for like five years. And I just kept trying. <laughs> and then... Guitar Player Magazine, I don't know if I solicited them or they called me, said, why don't you do a, um, an interview with Emmett? 
I don't know, it was some, some anniversary or something, 25th anniversary. And we, I interviewed him. And it was 2008, I think. Subsequently, Les Paul had just passed away. So there's an issue in 2008, I don't remember the month, and the whole issue is on Les Paul because he invented the electric guitar, basically, except for five pages on Emmett Chapman. And it says, Emmett Chapman, innovator. So it's 150 pages on Les Paul and five pages on, on Emmett. And I speak to him and he says, I, I, this is great. I love it. I owe you. I said, you sure do. Make me a, a damn fretless stick. And that's how I got it. <laughs> so that's how I got my first fretless stick. Whatever it takes. It's kind of yeah, like you gotta, <laughs> New York kind of like, right? Like it was kind of huffing up on them, you know? Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I didn't ask so you. I did, it, took, it took a while. Actually, I liked it so much. I asked him for another one. I, I have two of them now. One is here in Arizona. <laughs> one's in, in New York that hasn't been played in a while. But he hasn't made a whole lot of them. Uh, and it's really cool. It's hard to play, but it's just another another uh, tool, you know. So you put up a couple of videos uh, on it uh, on Facebook that I've seen, and mm -hmm. yeah, I love the sound of that fretless, and uh, you know, it, it it does change. Oh, it sounds the tone incredible, quite a bit. Yeah, right. But th th there's some restrictions, like you can play linear bass lines. Linear bass lines are, are easier, ex more accessible. When you play chords, it's difficult because you, you can't, the, the fingers get in each other's way and you have to play like on the fret. There's no in the fret kind of thing. So to get intonation, it's, it's difficult to play chords. Yeah, you got to be able to stack your fingers a lot more right. unnaturally than with mm -hmm. frets. Yeah, so cool stuff. So I think we're getting near the end of our time here, Steve. Um, but I wanted to ask, so if people are out there uh, listening and they're interested in contacting you about taking lessons, and by the way, if you're looking for lessons, you want to be talking to Steve uh, out there, uh, or if they want to find some of your music uh, or, you know, or otherwise, you know, learn more about you, where would you send people? Uh, my website is steveadelson.com. It's very out of date, but I just haven't, I haven't uh, up upgraded it yet. But just, there's still contact information on there. There's some videos on there. I think there's a, a nice Nam video they can watch. That I'm, I'm actually playing with Danny Gottlieb from uh, Pat Metheny's band, just a duo thing. Mm -hmm. A couple other videos that the regular people I played with in New York, I had a great vibraphone player named Brian Carrot, a drummer named um, Frank Bellucci, I think Kelly Minucci also from Special Effects. Anyway, there's a couple of cool videos on there. Most of my CDs are available on wherever you can, you know, Spotify, Pandora, CD Baby, I don't even know. Uh, unfortunately, it's tough to make money with your, with product. You know, it's hard to sell CDs, if not impossible. And if you're on any of these streaming outlets, uh, it's not even worth pursuing unless you're selling millions and millions of, of hits. Right. So it's not an economic thing. It's easy to find my, my music on YouTube, on Facebook, whatever. There probably won't be any more CDs put out because nobody buys them. So if you're passing through Phoenix, Arizona, and you want to say, I have a couple of regular gigs here now. Uh, they opened up a wine bar about five minutes from my house, and I play there every Saturday. I'm playing there tonight, as a matter of fact. But, it, you know, easy to find me, accessible, steveadelson.com. 
Uh, email is Steve A. Fran at AOL. You can email me there. Facebook's easy to find me, instant message. All right. These days, it's easy to find anybody, anytime. Steve, <laughs> what, what, what is the name of the place you're playing tonight out in Arizona? It's called Lentrata, L apostrophe E N T R A D A. It didn't take you very long to find an Italian place, did it? Well, it's a wine bar. They just named it Italian. Yes. It's, it's, um, and it's, when I was in Long Beach, I mean, I, probably twice a week, I had regular things that I played for like five or seven years, every single Friday, Saturday. So it was, it was great for playing repertoire. And that's what I do tonight. Um, again, very different than a, doing a concert. Tonight I'm playing user-friendly music, which I, I enjoy, you know. And, and the, the way the rotation goes, I'll play a Beatles song, a Sting song, a Pat Metheny song, an original then I'll play a Van Morrison, a uh, something else recognizable, and a Pat Metheny and an original. So I, I can sneak in the originals and some creative stuff as long as every two or three songs I'm playing something you know that people recognize. That people know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because people are there really to, to drink audience. wine or eat. They're not. It's not a concert. Yeah. So you have you have to kind of please the people over there. You know. Play to the room. You don't want people yeah, coming sure. and go. What the hell are you doing? What what kind of stupid music is that? Yeah, you got to <laughs> read the room. <laughs> Actually, I've done this more than once. I'll play an original song, the first set. The second set, I'll play the same original song. I've had people come up to me, what is that song? I, I've heard that before. It's really a cool song. <laughs> I go, yeah, it's a very, very famous song that I played an hour ago. <laughs> yeah. Right about the time right about the time you were getting your bruschetta is, is when I played it. That's where you remember it from. Well, it's familiar to them by then. You know. <laughs> oh, that's a great trick. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, Steve, uh, it's been really fun having you on and learning about you and your history and then some of the other history bits that you've given us that uh, sure. I've never heard before. Yeah. And, uh, and we really, again, we really appreciate your time. And so uh, thanks a lot for coming. And for those of you that are out there listening to this, Thanks again for your attention, and we hope that sometime in the next 24 hours or so, you get a chance to pick up your instrument and play for a while. Goodbye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ciao. Thanks. Appreciate it. We've been listening to some of Steve's music throughout this episode. Early on, we heard The Garden of Limahuli from his CD, Sonic Imagination. Then, we heard Tone 11 from The Answers Inside. Say that one fast. And now, as we close things out, we're hearing minor excursions from Sonic Imagination. about your comments but if you want to leave them anyways you can contact us at tapintimepodcasts at gmail.com 